Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Sometimes you just want the quick facts. No opinions, no speculation. I'm Claire Thornton, an audio editor with USA Today. My team works around the clock to bring you the Five Things podcast. Every morning, me and my co-host Taylor Wilson help you know what to keep an eye out for that day. We always have a fresh mix of stories, from politics to entertainment to sports, covering all parts of the country. On Sundays, you can lean back with in-depth episodes about stories you may have heard earlier that week. Go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite shows and start listening to Five Things today. Inside Florida Politics, powered by Gannett. Hello, I'm Sarasota Herald Tribune political editor Zach Anderson, and I'm joined from Tallahassee by Gannett State Capitol reporter John Kennedy. Hey, John. Hello, Zach. Joining me from Pembroke Pines is Palm Beach Post politics editor Antonio Fins. Howdy, Antonio. Hello, guys. How are you guys doing? Doing good. Doing good. It's a new year, and there's a new president in office, uh, and it wasn't even a week before Joe Biden uh, was inaugurated that uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis began feuding with his administration. We'll talk about the back and forth between DeSantis and Biden's press secretary over COVID-19 vaccine distribution to Florida, how Florida's two U.S. senators were reacting to the impeachment push against Donald Trump, and the highlights from the governor's budget presentation today. But first... That music means. Antonio, you got a number for us today? I do. I'm going with 4,183. All right. How about you, John? Well, we're about four weeks into the new year, and I've been stumbling along with some pretty low-key numbers. But this week, Zach, I'm busting loose. My number is 15.4 billion. 15.4 billion. Wow. John just came from a budget presentation, so he's got a lot of numbers floating around. We'll see what he picked out of the air. And my number is 1.1 million. That's 1.1 million, 15.4 billion, and 4,183. Remember those numbers, folks. We'll tell you what they mean in Florida politics at the end of the show. Well, Governor Ron DeSantis didn't have any criticism of the federal vaccine rollout when Donald Trump was president, but with Joe Biden taking office, Florida's governor is now speaking out. The jabs by DeSantis began with his comment that Biden's proposal for FEMA to operate vaccine clinics was, quote, a big mistake. DeSantis then complained about Florida not getting enough vaccine, leading Biden's press secretary to fire back that Florida hasn't distributed much of the vaccine it already has, a claim that didn't account for the fact that the state is holding back second doses of the vaccine. Antonio, we've talked about how Biden's presidency will reset Florida's relationship with the White House. Uh, It looks like that's already happening and we're off to a contentious start here. Yeah, that reset didn't take long, did it? Um, In fact, it wasn't even so much as a reset as it was just open verbal sparring between the governor and the White House this week. And and watching that go back, going back and forth uh, this past week, I I got the impression it wasn't just DeSantis who was itching for a fight. You kind of get the impression that the White House wants to paint DeSantis as COVID public enemy number one. You know, they know DeSantis is former President Trump's political godson. 
Democrats know this is a state that is going red big time and they want to turn things around. And, and they know COVID is the governor's Achilles heel to, to a large extent. And in fact, while the White House was sniping at DeSantis, Florida congressional Democrats were taking aim at him as well. And on Thursday, they were, they were scheduling this, this uh, another press conference to rip the governor for not public, publicizing a long-term written plan for vaccinations. And, and they were going to argue that the state still lacks a badly needed centralized appointment system to ensure everyone has a fair opportunity to, to get a, a vaccine. Um, you know, congressional Democrats have also chastised the governor for being, they say, anti-science and, and having a do-nothing record on COVID-19 contamination. You go way back to this early spring, they were... You know, they, they were pressuring him for a shelter-in-place order. Into the fall, they were pressuring him for a statewide mask mandate. So this is the, the battle between con- Florida's congressional Democrats and the governor has been brewing all along. But now you've got, a, as you said, the White House and this quote-unquote reset. Now, the governor has fought back saying that Democrats support economic shutdowns and that, that those are unnecessary and they're destructive to the economy. So uh, there are a lot of political punches being thrown here. Uh, the other issue I think here is is the economy. We just saw another spike in Florida jobless claims over the past week. And, and despite a drop in unemployment, there are more signs of real trouble for Florida's tourism, hospitality, and services industry. Uh, next month's Miami International Boat Show has been canceled. The, the popular Sunfest Festival in Palm Beach County has also been canceled. And that really cuts against the governor's claim that the state is turning the corner and the pandemic is behind us. So that's part of that Achilles heel that I think the Democrats see vulnerability um, and ironically, you know, there's a lot that the new Biden administration and DeSantis could work on together for the state's mutual benefit. You know, vaccines is one, but also infrastructure. You know, the state has those planned toll roads that you guys have been talking about here for quite a while. Um, you know, those toll roads need dollars. You know, there is talk about an infrastructure plan coming out of the White House. There could have been some assistance there uh, on climate. Florida is not dependent on coal production and is seeing a surge in solar industry. And that could also be, you know, the state could be a model for this climate friendly economy that the Biden team has been talking about. You know, we could rattle off a bunch of other initiatives, but looks like right now uh, we're just not going to be friends here when it comes to the governor, the White House and congressional Democrats. John, what do you think? Antonio sees some uh, political motivation here for Biden's press secretary trying to dunk on DeSantis and vice versa from a uh, a political perspective, uh, do you think that it helps or hurts DeSantis to be feuding with the White House over vaccines? Well, I, I think, as Antonia suggested, we're beginning to see the, uh, you know, a calculated clash here, maybe calculated by both sides. The uh, the Biden administration looks at DeSantis' handling of the vi- vaccine rollout and sees you know, an acolyte of former President Trump who endorsed all the wrong approaches of the Trump administration and now is turning around and proclaiming what a good job he's doing, but squawking that it would be better if only the federal government would get him more vaccine. Uh, The Biden folks, I think, look down from Washington and they see a state that is struggling, admittedly, like many are right now, but it may be largely the result of a lack of preparation by the Trump administration, who uh, disengaged from the vaccine rollout and uh, with the president largely focused on his attempts to uh, steal back the uh, election results. But, uh, you know, I think you have uh, Biden going along, um, trying to uh, figure out um, what might be something that helps him in this state uh, to, to try to kind of keep that going. And, um, because clearly it's a state where Republicans dominate. Um, 
but he's not going to give DeSantis a pass when he's uh, critical of the new administration for trying to get the uh, Federal Emergency Management Administration more involved in vaccine distribution and uh, pointing out that Florida still has a lot of undistributed vaccine on hand, which goes against the White House order to get as much of it uh, out as you can. Was that, a, was that a fair criticism, though, John? I mean, uh, you know, DeSantis was quick to shoot back and say, look, we're we're holding back some vaccine for second doses here, which apparently was was news to a lot of people because there was the governor had hinted earlier that he didn't want to hold back any vaccine. But it is appropriate and appropriate use of these vaccines, right, to hold them back and make sure people have the second doses. I think um, Anthony Fauci, that's what he was recommending. That's what the scientific establishment has recommended. Yeah, no, you're right. And, and, and yeah, I know it's a, it's a back and forth there between the two sides. But it, And I think one of the underlying things is Biden is willing to get the federal government more involved in vaccine distribution. And uh, that's a role many Democrats have wanted played throughout this pandemic. But uh, you remember Trump left it to the states to sort out and DeSantis, despite his difficulty with just about everything in this pandemic and the vaccine distribution, still now seems to want to be the decider at the state level. So I think that's kind of the underlying clash as well, a bit of a, you know, Washington versus the states uh, struggle. So, um, you know, I think uh, we've been seeing the glimmers of this uh, conflict for a while and uh, it's... um, something where uh, Republican legislators have been coming to Trump's defense with uh, legislation that would punish social media companies that have banned him from their platforms for all the lies that he's been tweeting. And uh, DeSantis is getting praise when he's showing up uh, typically in Republican leaning communities and saying that the uh, local publics now is going to start giving out vaccines. Um, You know, I, it's one of those Situations where I think DeSantis in this Republican leading state uh, feels that he can be uh, still, you know, very Trumpian. And uh, and part of that is uh, bashing the Biden administration. And I think we're going to see more of that as it goes on. Yeah. In politics, there's no shortage of uh, trying to deflect blame. And it always helps when uh, you can deflect the blame onto a member of your opposing party. DeSantis didn't want to deflect any blame onto to Trump, but uh, he seems happy to do it with Biden and vice versa. So I think we're just seeing a little taste of what's to come here. Well, as uh, Florida's governor was uh, feuding with the new president, Florida's U.S. senators both voted for a proposal put forward by Kentucky Senator Rand Paul this week to oppose impeachment on the grounds that you can't impeach someone who is not in office anymore. Only five Republicans voted with the 50 uh, Democrats and independents to move forward with the impeachment trial a sign that Trump will not be convicted. Antonio, there was a sense that maybe the riot at the U.S. Capitol was just so shocking it might convince more Republicans to break with Trump and support impeachment, maybe even Mitch McConnell, who had sort of left the door open to that, but that didn't happen. McConnell voted with the 45 Republicans, including uh, Florida lawmakers Marco Rubio and Rick Scott, to declare this impeachment effort unconstitutional. Let's focus on on Rubio for a minute because he's um, up for re-election in, in 2022, and he's been very vocal about opposing impeachment, calling it, quote, dumb and a waste of time and, quote, vengeance from the radical left. What do you what do you make of his comments? Well, look, the sources I spoke to this week couldn't help but think that maybe the uh, senator is looking over his shoulder at a potential primary challenge, perhaps, as we've discussed before, from Ivanka Trump herself, or at the very least, that he needs to not stray far from the Trump base 
if he wants to win re-election next year. You know, here's the thing. The Trump base and the far right and the Tea Party element of the party have looked at Rubio with suspicion for years now. Remember, Rubio, as we talked about previous weeks, Rubio ran as a Tea Party hardline conservative in 2010. That's how he won that, the seat that he now occupies. Then he ran afoul of the base after he recanted his hardline on immigration a few years later. That cost him dearly in the 2016 GOP presidential primaries when he went up against uber immigration hardliner Donald Trump and the paid-for-by-Mexico wall chant. Now, Rubio again anchored the angered the base by voting to certify President Biden's election in that post-Capitol riot in the wee hours of January 7th. So now he's going doing this dance back and forth where, you know, now he's a, you know, he's a he's opposed to, you know, the, the impeachment, even though, you know, he condemned the riot and, and so forth. Now, the problem, though, is that Rubio is not exactly being artful in, in making these arguments, you know, calling the, the impeachment trial stupid in that appearance on Fox over the last weekend. Um, you know, that was kind of unrubio like, especially when you consider that there is a president a historic precedent to back his and the GOP's position. America does have a roadmap to dealing with a, this constitutional question of how to deal with a president who has left the White House in disgrace. And that was in the summer of 1974. Richard Nixon faced impeachment in the House and certain removal from office over the Watergate scandal if he went to a trial in the Senate. So Nixon resigned. And when he did, the impeachment proceedings in the Congress came to a drumped end. That is why Richard Nixon was never impeached. And Republicans can point out that congressional Democrats in 1974 could have gone ahead with impeachment. Nixon could have been tried in absentia in the U.S. Senate, but they didn't. And they didn't because they concluded it was time to move on. In fact, what the legislative branch did, you know, you know 47 years ago, was to kick the Nixon issue to the judicial branch, basically say, hey, he's out of office. We're dropping our case, but it's up to the Department of Justice and the prosecutors to decide what to do next. And in fact, I've spoken in the past with Jill uh, Weinbanks, who was one of the lead prosecutors in that case. And she said that they were getting ready to indict Nixon, that they were arguing in the office on how to structure the indictment of Nixon. But that, obviously, you know, that, that never came to pass because then the executive branch stepped in with President Ford giving Nixon a pardon. But even that didn't end there because exactly two months after that pardon, in September 1974, two months later in the 1974 midterm elections, Republicans took a beating and would not recover until the Reagan landslide six years later. So here's the moral of the story. Rubio, ever the astute knower of history, could have just made this argument, could just make this a central argument and, and make a really convincing case about healing and the best way to deal with, with Trump's you know, whatever we believe or whatever the public believes is, it was Trump's incitement or not of this riot, allow prosecutors in the judicial system to decide that. And um, and then, you know, for voters ultimately to weigh in on whatever happens with Trump. But he didn't. You know, he went on Fox and he called this impeachment proceeding stupid. And that's why I think people who I was talking to this week about this think that this was really more red meat rhetoric for the base than really and, and looking ahead to 2022 politics rather than you know constitutionality and, and what the constitution would allow or not allow. Yeah, not exactly a nuanced legal argument to call impeachment uh, dumb and stupid. Those sound like uh, kind of things that you would say on on the playground as a you know as one a child. thing to remember. 
I'm sorry, Zach. I was going to say one thing to remember too is, uh, you know, Rubio seems ready to turn the page on the Trump administration and the attack on the uh, Capitol three weeks ago as uh, old news. But uh, this is the same Marco Rubio who helped keep alive for four years a steady Republican line of attack on uh, Hillary Clinton as Secretary of State for her role in the attack on the U.S. Embassy in Benghazi. Uh, this was, of course, leading up to Clinton's failed uh, 2016 presidential campaign and, of course, his own failed campaign to win the Republican nomination that he lost to Donald Trump. But it seems like this time around, Rubio is ready to close the book on the Trump years and uh, the need for impeachment for inciting an overthrow of the government. The, pro the problem is I don't think you're closing the book on the Trump years. The Trump years still, has, still <laughs> has some legs. And in fact, you know, Kevin, if not, Kevin McCarthy would not be a Mar-a-Lago uh, meeting with the, the former president. So I, I think the uh, Trump years has, has more chapters <laughs> ahead. For sure. Uh, and especially for us here in Florida, uh, if Rubio is trying to uh, guard against, um, you know, anybody challenging him uh, in, in a primary, you know, opposing impeachment is is um, probably politically almost uh, mandatory. The Republican base right now, you know, it, it, you see that three quarters of them do oppose this. And, and so, you know, they, they still firmly believe that uh, the president, you know, uh, whatever he did does not deserve to be impeached. Well, as we were debating uh, impeachment, that will continue uh, to move forward here uh, with a February 9th trial date set. Uh, Florida uh, has a lot of other uh, issues on its plate, including uh, the budget for the 2021-22 year that the governor rolled out this week. John, you were at the governor's uh, budget presentation. What were some of the highlights? Yeah, this is kind of a milestone when it comes to uh you know, how things develop with the legislature coming into town uh, on March 2nd for two months, and they'll be the ones that ultimately uh, craft the budget. But the governor, uh, 30 days before the uh, start of the session, is uh, required by law to present his uh, proposal. And today he did uh, a $96.6 billion budget proposal that uh, pretty much bolstered by federal aid that allows him to uh, propose increases in schools, uh, teacher pay, environmental spending, and avoiding uh, tuition and uh, tax boosts that uh, some fellow Republicans in the legislature are already talking about. Um, you know, it's remarkable that this uh, spending plan for next year is $4.3 billion bigger than the current year. Uh, much of that increase is for COVID-19 response. And uh, in turn, much of the cash for that comes from the from Washington, which uh, DeSantis said is warranted. He, he sort of blames the federal government for a lot of the economic fallout that came to this state uh, with uh, the tourist industry uh, pretty quickly during the spring. And that has kind of cascaded through the rest of the year. But, uh, you know, I mean, th th that's kind of remarkable coming from DeSantis, a, a former founding member of uh, Congress's Freedom Caucus, which uh, regularly uh, rails against federal spending. In this case, uh, the federal spending is uh, is needed and wanted. Uh, the biggest share of it probably comes from uh, in, in the area of Medicaid, where the federal government is uh, increasing the federal share of um spending in uh, so that allows for the state to have a little bit more general revenue that they can spend uh, uh, in other areas. So it's kind of remarkable that uh, DeSantis uh, is, is banking on an improving economy. He says that the legislature uh, is going to be even better shape as uh, the months go on because the state's uh, tax collections have been coming in better than uh, forecast. Because uh, the state's economists uh, have uh, 
pretty much uh, put together a, a pretty strict uh, uh, revenue forecast that uh, going into this year, the state was facing a $2 billion uh revenue shortfall when it comes to uh, what they need to kind of continue this budget. But uh, DeSantis says uh, that's going to improve. So he's banking on brighter days coming and the spending uh, plan that he releases reflects that with with more money for per pupil spending in in schools, no uh, university tuition increase, which had already been put on the table. Um, And uh, he even creates a new billion dollar program, billion over four years, that would uh, help uh, local governments with uh, uh, environmental uh, uh, climate change issues when it comes to uh, rising sea levels and uh, the, the flooding that is plaguing a lot of uh, particularly South Florida cities. So, uh, you know, I, I know, DeSantis at this point seems to touch all the bases in this budget, um, whether, you know, it, it's really going to hold up and whether uh, the fellow Republicans in the legislature embrace uh, a lot of it is still an unknown. But uh so far, the Republican legislature has pretty much turned it over to DeSantis to uh, to uh, deal with everything uh, COVID-19 related. And uh, to a great extent, it seems like this budget that the governor has rolled out uh, is an extension of that. And uh, maybe the legislature just largely uh, uh, embraces many of the initiatives that the governor is planning on. Um, because there doesn't seem to be a lot of independent thinking out of the legislature right now. DeSantis, he seems to be a lot more optimistic about um, the budget than uh, a lot of other lawmakers uh, up there. You know, he he really, um, you know, was focusing a lot on, you know, the positives and uh, the uh, expectation that uh, revenue would exceed um, the current forecast and, uh, you know, highlighted an increase in per-pupil education spending and, and holding um, environmental spending uh, at the same levels. Uh, you know, it, it, I know you haven't really had the opportunity to dissect this or to get feedback from from lawmakers about it, um, but it, I, I'm just wondering what your gut sense is, is how realistic of a budget this is when you hear lawmakers um, in, in, in the legislature, you know, in the House and Senate talking about cuts, uh, and potentially even cuts to education. And then DeSantis says he wants to increase purple per pupil spending. Um, is this kind of like, he's got his rose colored glasses on a bit here? Well, he does. Um, but I guess it is something where right now it, it is not, uh, unusual for state economists to come in, uh, a, a little bit low with their revenue forecasts. That that has been a little bit of a history where they're relatively conservative with their forecasts. And uh, tax collections have been doing better. You would tend to think that as the vaccine uh, becomes, you know, a little bit more widely distributed in Florida, though it's still, you know, kind of narrowly held, that the economy will start reflecting that. So maybe there will be more activity as the uh, months go forward. So that's kind of what he's banking on is, uh, you know, that this uh, this distribution of uh, the vaccine will uh, start turning things around and uh, the state's uh, treasury will start looking better because there's more uh, economic activity in the state. Uh, It is possible. And uh, right now, this uh, recommendation that he's putting forward uh, doesn't go into effect, of course, till uh, July 1. Uh, So there is a little bit of time to see how this rolls out. So it's possible. Uh, But again, it's also contingent to a great extent on a lot of help from the federal government, which, uh, 
you know, w- was not something that DeSantis was a big fan of once upon a time. So some hard numbers and uh, a little bit of maybe uh, hopefulness from DeSantis uh, in these uh, budget numbers as well. We'll see, um, you know, there, there is definitely um, a sense that things could could turn around uh, when the vaccine uh, takes hold. But when exactly that will happen is still a little unclear. So, um, you know, uh, that could have a big impact on the state's budget going forward. We'll move on to some numbers here. Antonio, you had 4,183. What's that about? That is the uh, number of number most recently reported for daily COVID infections in Sweden. Now, you may ask, why do we care about Sweden? This is, after all, the Inside Florida Politics podcast, not the Inside Swedish Politics podcast. And I will answer because the governor cares. In fact, uh, Governor DeSantis has said on a, numerous, well, a number of occasions that Sweden's handling of uh, COVID should be a model. And in fact, just last month, the governor said, quote unquote, Sweden got it right. And it wasn't the first time he lauded the Scandinavian country's COVID efforts, specifically when it comes to school openings and, and business closures. Now, I found it curious that Sweden, a homogeneous country uh, in Northern Europe, would be a model for Florida, which is anything but homogeneous, and not to mention the 130 million tourists and snowbirds that pass through this state every year. But I was still open and minded enough that I offered to go to Sweden to check it out. Uh, but my editor said, that, thanks, but uh, thanks for the selfless offer, but it's not in our travel budget. So last week, last week, I decided to do the next best thing then to go to Sweden. That is that, uh, as we, we talked about uh, last week, we covered the return to Florida of former President Trump. And that return uh, drew an entire platoon of international media, including journalists from Sweden. So I took the opportunity to pick their brains about the Swedish Rona model. And and what they said is that Sweden really wasn't a model, not at least the way that the government paints it. They explained that, yes, the, the governor is right that Sweden didn't shut down the economy like we did here. But it wasn't because of scientific data or it wasn't because of public health analysis or or anything to do with the actual virus. It was because the Swedish government simply, lim- the limited powers of the Swedish government simply didn't permit it. That said, Swedes, the journalist told me, take COVID very seriously. And now the country's actually considering new laws, a new set of laws to allow it to respond better next time around in case of a, of a public health emergency, including potential closures of businesses. Now, the one area where Sweden could be a model is in education. We're a year into the pandemic. Uh, it does appear they told they told me that the data shows that schools in that country have op- have remained open and they've reopened they've been maintained open uh, safely. So you can say, "Aha! See, the government is right about that." However, the journalist did point out that Swedes are more likely to trust the government and the country's health experts. So when they say wear a face covering, people are more likely to do so than in America and even Florida where you know, DeSantis himself has refused to implement a statewide requirement. So one of the reasons that Swedish schools could be operating with low infection rates and, and low spread of the disease may well be because the general population is more apt to wear a mask and to maintain social distancing. All that being said, Sweden's population is half of Florida's. We got 20 million people, they got 10 million. So the 4,183 cases most recently revealed for a single day on a per capita basis, was the same as what Florida reported on that day. And there are a total of 1 million plus cases per capita in Sweden, whereas in Florida, you know, we have 1.6 million cases. So 
you know, per capita, yeah, we have a few, we have you know a, a, a higher number of cases than in Sweden. So you could say that Sweden got that right, but you could also conclude that they got it right because they are following the prescriptions for keeping infections low, meaning wearing face coverings and keeping distance. So, um, and they are doing so. They told me not because the government forced them to, but because they trust the count, country's health experts. That much the journalist told me Sweden got right, as our governor would say. All right. Uh, not just Florida political analysis, people. We got uh, Sweden covered for you as well. John, you had 15.4 billion. Tell us about that. Yeah, yeah I'm going to borrow a page from Antonio here and take you uh, wide overseas here. Uh, 15.4 billion dollars is what Japan is spending to host the Summer Olympics, which you may have noticed. Uh, Florida Chief Financial Officer Jimmy Petronas uh, successfully managed to grab some headlines on this week by saying maybe it should be relocated to Florida. Florida, of course, is dealing with, you know, a challenging state budget, but never mind. We've got a few hotels that need business and uh, restaurants that would welcome some Olympic visitors, I guess. So uh, what the heck? Patronus, the, the state's top chief, you know, financial officer, evidently didn't do much thinking on the potential cost of putting on an Olympics. Instead, uh, he's just uh, finding something that can get his name in the headlines. Uh, Patronus seized on this publicity stunt uh, amid some rumblings in Japan about the the possibility of hosting the uh, already once postponed Olympics this summer in Tokyo. Uh, COVID cases right now uh, are still high in the nation of Japan, but frankly, they're half of what they are in the state of Florida. Uh, another fact that Patronus obviously ignores. But uh, Patronus, uh, remember, he was appointed to the CFO post by former Governor Rick Scott before uh, winning election on his own. And uh, obviously, he's learned something from uh, his uh, benefactor, because uh, you might remember when Scott was going around trying to court businesses to Florida from what are seen as higher tax states. And he once even tried to urge Harvard University to move to Florida to avoid life in uh, Taxachusetts. Uh, kind of ridiculous, right? But well, here's Patronus. The Japan Olympics uh, move is uh, kind of keeping with uh, earlier letters that he had sent to Elon Musk trying to uh, get Tesla to move to Florida to avoid taxes in California. And uh, maybe you remember his demand last spring to the Chinese ambassador for that nation to uh, compensate Florida for the costs that were associated with the coronavirus, which, uh, you know, allegedly began in Wuhan, China. Uh, so, you know, anyone uh, in Florida listening, maybe, you know, has got a nice backyard lap pool that they want to volunteer as the site for the Olympic swimming events, or maybe uh, the Olympic marathon could just follow the Florida turnpike. Uh, I'm sure Florida's top financial officer will find a way to bring us the Olympics without costing us anything. And I would recommend, John, that they house the uh, Cuban athletes at the Little Havana Hilton. <laughs> Only 90 miles away. Well, uh, apparently I didn't get the memo that uh, the uh, segment was supposed to have an international uh, flair this week. Uh, uh, we had Antonio with Swedish viral analysis, uh, John with Japanese uh, Olympics uh, analysis. I... Uh, I'm sticking with a only in Florida number, 1.1 million. That's the number of uh, vaccines that have been distributed to Florida seniors so far. Governor Ron DeSantis gave an update uh, during his budget presentation today to talk about um, how many uh, vaccines ha have been out. Uh, you know, he's uh, continuing to 
hammer on that issue. Uh, it's a big one for Floridians. The 1.1 million is about 24% uh, of the, the 65 and older uh, population in Florida. So nearly a quarter of Florida seniors have uh, been vaccinated uh, at this point. Um, and, and that is a, a substantial number. The governor has gotten uh, a lot of flack for the, the vaccine uh, rollout. Um, uh, people have, have had trouble getting appointments. They've been frustrated by the appointment system. They've been frustrated um, by uh, the fact that there's a, a limited amount of vaccine and, and um, you know, that uh, these appointments have been very hard to get. But hopefully that will start to change soon when you start to see numbers like, um, you know, nearly a quarter of seniors being vaccinated, um, you know, uh, at some point, uh, the, the vaccine supply uh, should catch up with uh, the d demand here, uh, and we'll start to, uh, um, you know, see this uh, snowball. The claim about seniors being vaccinated, you know, the governor ha has taken some heat over that because, uh, you know, while he has opened up the vaccinations to uh, all seniors in Florida, uh, there still has uh, not been full vaccination at the state's uh, long-term care facilities. Uh, the nursing homes have all gotten the vaccine at this point, but uh, the state is still working to get the vaccine to all of the assisted living facilities. The governor said that all of the assisted living uh, centers will have the vaccine uh, by the end of the month. Um, I talked to some of them this week and they still hadn't gotten it. Um, you know, those are the most vulnerable seniors in this state, many of them uh, very old and, and very frail. Uh, so, um, you know, there's been some criticism that uh, the governor opened it up to all seniors before uh, making sure that some of these seniors who are the most vulnerable um, actually got the vaccine and many of them are getting the vaccine after people uh, in the general population of seniors got it. Uh, some of them told me that they got it after um, their kids had already gotten it. So, um, you know, that's been uh, a point of contention here, uh, but uh, it, the state is definitely making some progress with getting seniors vaccinated. That wraps up another episode of Inside Florida Politics. I want to thank our audio production guru, Thomas Cordy. Thanks to all of you for listening. Stay safe. We're out of here.